Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. George Orwell. Um, Welcome to episode 22. Um, I can't believe it's already up to 22 episodes. Wow, this has been fun. So I, you know, I don't even count, lost count already. But um, last week I had a great episode with Major General Charles Bolden, former NASA administrator, former astronaut. If you guys haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you go back and listen to it. He's such an extraordinary guy. His story is so amazing. So if you haven't listened to that episode, please check it out. And uh, this week we have Michael Steele, former RNC chairman. He was also the first black chairman ever elected to be chairman of the Republican National Committee. And he's joining me to talk a little bit about the state of the Republican Party, why in God's name he's still a Republican, a question I get asked all the time. He has an interesting answer. Um, and, you know, some of the of what's going on with this national emergency. And he talks also a little bit about who his biggest disappointments have been in the Republican Party in this era of Trump. So stay tuned for that. Um, I, I love Michael Steele because he always keeps it 100, and I appreciate that about him. I've known Michael for a long time, so we have a great conversation. Also on this episode, my friend John Murray, who is a TV journalist and pop culture expert, I brought him back on the show to talk about this crazy story with Empire star Jussie Smollett. It looks like his hate, what was a hate crime attack, he claimed, may have been a hoax, folks. And it's not looking good for for Jussie. Um, His story's falling apart. So I wanted to bring John back on because he's always in the know about stuff like this. And um, he's he's always fun to talk to. So he's coming up in a minute to talk about that. Some interesting stuff that he reveals about um, Jussie and and what's been going on with this whole story. Some behind the scenes things that I don't think have been really widely reported at this point. So some exclusive stuff from from John. But before we get into those into those interviews, um, there's been so much in the news. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit first, just a little bit, because my we have two interviews, so I don't want to go on uh, too long on the political part of things this week, but um, I've got to talk about two major things. One being the national emergency. We are now apparently officially in a national emergency. Trump declared one last Friday after he reluctantly signed the compromise deal on immigration and border security for less money than he was offered before the government shut down, by the way. I mean, talk about a shitty deal maker. This guy is not a good deal maker. Last week when I recorded the podcast, it was right before the compromise was announced. So I predicted that Trump would probably declare the national emergency because that was really the only way out. He'd backed himself into a corner. Um, The deadline for another government shutdown was approaching. That was February 15th. So something had to happen. And uh, early in the week, last week, something did happen. Democrats and Republicans struck a deal and it was for less money. (laughs) I mean, people who sit here and still try to say that Donald Trump is a great deal maker they just have their heads up their asses. They just don't want to admit that, the, that they were duped. He is a terrible deal maker. Who 
comes out with less than what they asked for in every way. There was, he got no wins, like nothing. When you make a deal, the art of the deal is like you get something out of it. He didn't get shit out of this. Not only that, in the deal that was struck by Congress that was signed into law, it was $1.3 billion. He originally, they originally offered $1.6 before the shutdown. He was like, no, I want $5.7 billion. And I mean, he's not getting the concrete wall because he changed that, right? Now it's the steel slats thing. There, He didn't really get anything out of this that he really wanted it pissed off his base Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter Rush Limbaugh those folks they were not happy in the beginning but the only thing that placated them that shut them up was basically Trump giving them a wink a wink and a nod saying don't worry I'm gonna get more money to build this wall I'm going to declare a national emergency and that's what he did so on Friday I watched it in real time in horror I was also live tweeting it as it was going on. Trump goes into the Rose Garden and he makes the official announcement. Now, you always know that it's going to be a wild ride when Trump has no teleprompter. We all complain about teleprompter Trump being boring and it's uncomfortable to watch. And that's true. He sucks at reading the teleprompter. It's like uncomfortable to watch. However, at least you know it will pretty it'll be pretty standard I mean, he goes off the rail sometimes when he starts to riff but when you have when he has a written statement he usually sticks to the script when there's no teleprompter there's no telling what the hell he's gonna say and that's what happened on friday he comes out and he goes off on this rant about the national emergency about you know, he, he, the, the weird fetish again with the, with the taped up women and human trafficking crap. So weird. And by the way, border patrol and others have not been, they haven't come out and said the same thing about how these women are being human trafficked across the border, taped up and gagged and all that. They're like, well, that's not quite how it happens, but okay. Like this is something, this is some weird fetish that Trump made up. Or somebody told him, or maybe that happens like here and there, but that's not the main way people are human trafficked, by the way. Okay. And then he just started to spout all kinds of things that were absolutely not true, telling telling people, his supporters, because that's really who he's talking to. Because those of us who know better are no, he's lying. But his supporters, it doesn't matter what he tells them, they believe everything he says. It's it's just it's frustrating as hell. But he started lying about don't believe the media when they tell you that drugs don't come across the southern border. Yes, they do. And all this. And again, I'm going to reiterate this just like I did on my Twitter feed. Most of the large quantities of drugs, the fentanyl, the cocaine, heroin, they come through legal ports of entry. People are not bringing over large quantities. I mean, I'm sure they smuggle a little bit here and there over the southern border where there's no wall, but we're talking like kilos and hundreds of pounds. They're going through legal ports of entry. We just had the largest fentanyl bust in U.S. history at a legal port of entry in Nogales, Arizona. An intrepid CBP officer with their dog did a secondary inspection of a produce truck and found the fentanyl. 
a couple weeks ago, another major fentanyl bust in the port of Philadelphia. I mean, again, legal port of entry. I got into a really heated argument with Ben Ferguson, who, you know, Ben and I are friends. I don't have anything personal against Ben. I mean, I obviously take issue with his defense of Trump, and I don't know how sincere those defenses are, but whatever, That's he's the one that's got to sleep at night. But Ben and I got into a pretty heated argument on CNN over the weekend about the about Trump declaring this national emergency. And as a conservative, I am horrified by Donald Trump abusing his power as president to do this. And anyone who calls himself a conservative should be just as alarmed. It is an abuse. Can he, does he have the power based off the National Emergencies Act from 1976? Does he have the ability to declare a national emergency? Yes, he does based on the law. But it's how you use that power that matters. That's what's at issue here. Not whether he can, it's how. The way he's doing it is in a total abuse of the statute, not how it was originally intended. And Article 1 of the Constitution very clearly states that it is Congress's job to appropriate money. The power of the purse belongs to the legislative branch. The brilliance of our founding fathers in the separation of powers and the co-equal branches of government was balancing that out so that the executive branch, the president, can't just use money and do whatever the hell he wants whenever he wants. That's what a king does. That's what we fought a revolutionary war to get away from. And the founding fathers understood this. So the power of the purse is one of the fundamental roles of the Congress and one of the most important. And it balances the powers between legislative and executive. And then the courts come in there and interpret. Is it constitutional or not? But Donald Trump doesn't have any respect for that. And Republicans used to say that Barack Obama didn't. They had the nerve to call Barack Obama an imperial president. And I agreed with some of those things. There were some heavy-handed abuses of executive power, in my opinion, but that's another story. But nothing compared to what Donald Trump is doing, and now Republicans are defending this. You've got to be fucking kidding me. I, I cannot take the hypocrisy. Every week I say this because there's another example of where it happens. But this has long-term consequences. When Ben Ferguson and I got into that argument on CNN, it was because he knows better. I know he does, as do most of these Republicans who are now uh, defending Donald Trump with this national emergency crap. They know that this is a horrible precedent. They know that if if the if you start justifying a president throwing a temper tantrum because Congress did not appropriate enough money for a pet project that he wants or something he thinks should be done, then now they're going to start declaring national emergencies. That can be used in so many dangerous ways. And I, I've mentioned this in, in other episodes. What's to stop a Democratic, a future Democratic president from declaring a national emergency and re, reshuffling money around when it comes to gun control or climate change or health care? I, uh, you know, a $15 minimum wage, they want it nationally. It's a, it's a national emergency that there's poor people. I mean, it could, it never stops if you sit here and you justify this. So I, I just can't take it. I can't take the, the, the justification, the rationalization for doing something that is so existentially threatening to the constitutional order. It really is. And I'm not trying to sound alarmist here. This is, uh, this is the truth. 
you be careful what you wish for. We saw the example with the way the Republicans used the nuclear option in the Senate. It started with the Democrats. Harry Reid, when he was majority leader, he changed the rules of the Senate so that you didn't need a 60 seat majority to um, uh, confirm nominees, judicial nominees, because they were frustrated Republicans were holding it up. Obama's a judicial nominee. So they said, all right, we're going to do the nuclear option. You only need 50 plus one. Well, when Mitch McConnell took over and Republicans got control of the Senate back, guess what they did? They said, we're going to use the nuclear option for Supreme Court nominees. Where in the past, you used to have to have 60 votes to stop a filibuster. Now you only need 51. So there's not as much bipartisan consensus when it comes to um, nominating and confirming lifelong appointments like judicial judges and judicial appointments and the Supreme Court. Be careful what you wish for, Republicans. This is going to come back and bite us in the ass if the courts uphold this. Now, I don't think they will. I don't think there's a strong enough legal argument. Um, and the, the declaration of the national emergency, basically what Trump is doing is he's, he's taking money from military construction, which was specifically designated for military use and applying it to building the wall. The statute that this is under the national emergencies act, there's different sections of it in very specific language, um, that dictates what this means. And the, the Trump declaration is all over the place. David French does a great explainer on National Review about this. Kudos to David French. If you want to take a look at it, you can. I suggest you. He's very thoughtful in his um, in his writings. And David French is a never Trump guy. So he's he's, um, you know, his head's not up his ass, but he gives a, a really great explainer on this. And he basically is saying, look, the way the statute is written he calls it a contemptuous document, the the National uh, Declaration from Trump, because it's so far off from the original, what the intent of the original statute was. And he explains that, look, Trump never really says why this is a crisis now, because it's not. It's a fake emergency. It's a tool Trump is using for a political win to save his ass because he backed himself into a corner on immigration and his and his rabid base wants a damn wall. So he's got to do something and now they're grasping at straws, but chipping away at constitutional norms in the process. Um, he, he uses the example that, look, this is stuff supposed to be about supporting the military and military construction. Like that's building military housing or rehabbing military installations, things that are supportive for the troops, not for a civilian problem like the border. The border wall is a civilian project that's the, the border is patrolled by civilian law enforcement, domestic law enforcement, not the military. It's not their job. You know, the problems that they talk about at the border, the humanitarian crisis, the gangs, the drugs, those are civilian criminal problems. Those are not acts of war. So this, you know, reappropriating of military funds, it doesn't apply and just because Trump threw some troops down there to say, see, we, th- we sent troops to the border, that doesn't make it a national security risk and interest. Just because troops were there doesn't mean they must be there to solve the problem. That's a very important distinction. So when this goes, I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, I, I and I don't try to play one on television either, but I try to do my due diligence. 
and talk to people um, who are lawyers, who are legal scholars, and try to get their analysis. And you know, this is what I'm hearing, that this does not really stand a chance in court. This is very different from the travel ban. Um, and it's never been done like this before. So it's going to get tied up in the courts. The lawsuits are already being filed. Um, and I just don't see how even one inch of this wall is built because it's going to be so tied up with legal issues. Even eminent domain is a problem. Eminent domain is where the government can come in and seize private property for a public good. Very controversial. Libertarians don't like that. Um, the ACLU doesn't like that. Uh, most people who are, you know, pr- private property rights folks don't like that idea that the government can come and do that. When does the, does that happen? You know, when they build highways or uh, things like that, where they claim it's for the public good, they compensate the landowners and, you know, they build your highway or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's tough. But for something like this, it's, um you know, it's just people have a right to defend their private property. It's hard to go up against the government. But just the idea, you know, Trump used, used eminent domain all the time to build his, his casinos and things. He doesn't give two shits about people and, and, and their properties and things. He doesn't care. Don't, you know. So it's going to be ugly. It's real, It really is. But this way he can turn around and say that the judiciary now is, is, the, is the enemy, uh, which we've already started seeing. And he's back on the whole the press is the enemy of the people stuff again. Um, anytime he gets caught, you know, things have been ramping up in the, in the Russia investigation. And so he's, he's back to doing that. But this national emergency thing, uh, is no bueno. And I, I, there's a running list on the bulwark.com, which is a new, like, um, conservative website. A lot of never Trumpers over there trying to keep the conservative movement honest. Bill Crystal started it. Um, they have a running list of what Republicans have, have spoken, who, which Republicans have spoken out against this, um, this national emergency. And, and thankfully, you know, it's a hearty list, but in my opinion, it, there's not enough. It's not enough because every Republican should be against this. Every one of them. But some of the people who are, who've come out publicly, let's see what happens if there's a vote. That's the next thing. Nancy Pelosi, I explained this, I think it was last week's edition. Um, I explained that Nancy, or maybe it was two weeks ago, Nancy Pelosi has the ability as Speaker of the House under the same law to force a resolution, so to force a vote. And they, if the House votes on it, the Senate then has to vote on it. That means that there will be members on record whether they supported this move by Trump or not. It's different when you can just kind of use words and, and, and skirt around the issue and not be too definitive on it, but you can't change a vote that's on record. So good for, good for her. I hope Nancy Pelosi does that. I hope she pulls the trigger on that and forces these bastards to put it on record. So are you, in, so are you for the rule of law or are you for Donald Trump's pet projects and his, and his ego? Hmm? Republican senators, what? Mitch McConnell is claiming that, oh, well, he doesn't have a problem with Trump doing this bullshit. He knows better also. But Trump was about to tank the spending bill, the, the compromise agreement. I mean, he was half a step away. So maybe they were just doing this to, to shut him up so he would sign the bill and we wouldn't have another government shutdown. I don't know. But they, when it comes down to this vote, I'm telling you right now, people pay attention to who votes for it and who doesn't. I think you're going to see a split in the Republican caucus. So far, you have Susan Collins, Senator Murkowski, Pat Toomey, Lamar Alexander, 
Ben Sass from Nebraska. Thank God. Let's see what happens when there's a vote. Rob Portman, Johnny Isaacson, Marco Rubio, Ron Johnson, Tom Tillis, John Cornyn, Mike Rounds, Chuck Grassley, Rand Paul, Mitt Romney, Mike Lee, James, John Barrasso, Senator Langford. Uh, those are the senators so far. That's not everyone. But, you know, Lindsey Graham, by the way, he's all uh, up the ass of the president. I don't know what happened to Lindsey. Uh, Michael Steele has some, some some thoughts about that, too, coming up. Um, but he's he's defending Trump on this, which is just nuts. I can't imagine John McCain would if he were still here. Congressman Will Hurd is is excellent on the border and he's really um, he's been outspoken about, you know, Trump's ideas not being necessary. Not really the right approach to the border since Will Hurd represents 800 miles of the border with Texas. That's his district. Um, pay attention to what Will Hurd has to say. He's he's an expert on this, former CIA operative, great member of Congress, Republican, who's standing up for the truth and what's really going on down there and what those guys really need to be effective with border security. So those are some of the folks. So we'll see. We'll pay, we're paying attention to that. I will continue to inform you guys on what's going on, but that's um, where we are right now. So the other thing before we get to John Murray and um, Michael Steele, um, yeah, 60 Minutes. I love 60 Minutes. I've been watching it since I was a kid. And I can remember my parents, my mom used to watch it. And I can remember the tick, 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 tick of the clock. And I used to be like, oh my God, this is so boring. But then as I got a little older and started paying attention to the news and current events, I just found 60 Minutes to be fascinating because they do such great in-depth investigative stories and I I like 60 minutes so I don't know maybe I'm just old now (laughs) but Andrew McCabe was on 60 minutes who is Andrew McCabe and why do we care he was the acting FBI director after Donald Trump fired Jim Comey two years ago almost two years ago now he is a 21 year veteran counterintelligence FBI officer agent Andy McCabe was also fired from the FBI last year one day before he was eligible for his full pension because it was found during an inspector general's report that he was not truthful when asked about leaking information to the media and ironically the information that was leaked to the Wall Street Journal was actually about Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation it was not against Donald Trump but Andy McCabe was part of the Hillary email investigation. Donald Trump has made him a target because his wife ran for a local state office as a Democrat in Virginia and received money from Terry McAuliffe, who is who was the governor of Virginia, Democrat, very close to the Clintons. So, of course, Donald Trump conflated all of this during the election and made Andy McCabe enemy number one. You know, he was part of the deep state. There was this whole... Um, insurance policy with a couple of other FBI agents, the whole Lisa, Lisa Page and Peter Strzok thing where they were texting each other. They were having an affair with each other and they were texting back and forth. They both worked at the FBI. Peter Strzok was another counterintelligence agent talking about an insurance policy against Donald Trump because they were horrified by his candidacy, as most of us with any sense were. So imagine you're in the FBI and you're watching what's going on with Donald Trump and, and Russia and all of the shit that was going on and your lifelong career is in counterintelligence and you see these things and you're alarmed. Well, then they were and they expressed it. 
Um, An inspector general report said, look, we didn't find that affected their work any, but they, you know, their personal opinions are their personal opinions. They shouldn't have been texting on work phones about this. But Trump and his people have turned this into this big thing that everybody was in cahoots to have like a coup against Donald Trump. Well, no, they were not trying to have a coup, but they were concerned and legitimately so based on Donald Trump's own words, behaviors, and things that they were, the information they were privy to as counterintelligence officers. I mean, this shit with Russia is real. Just enough of what we've seen in the public domain. Imagine what these guys know with their security clearances. Good grief. So Andrew McCabe was fired for lack of candor. So he does have a little bit of a credibility problem for people. Legitimately, I get it. You know, he wasn't truthful in his interviews about whether he leaked or not. However, that should not erase 20 plus years of solid work enough to the point where he was acting FBI director. I mean, you know, he was number two in the FBI for a very long time. Well, he was on 60 Minutes. He's got a new book, a new book coming out. And he, there were, I mean, I suggest you guys go back and watch. It's very fascinating. But there were two major pieces of information that came out. One, we kind of already knew about. And it was about Rod Rosenstein, who is the deputy attorney general. He's the guy that took over the Mueller investigation because Jeff Sessions, when he was AG, recused himself for conflict of interest. So Rod Rosenstein has been was running the investigation for months, well, almost two years until Sessions stepped down. They brought in that Matt Whitaker guy who was completely unqualified to be acting AG Um, and basically took it from Rosenstein, but he still oversees some of it. Now we have a new attorney general, uh, William Barr, who was just confirmed. So now it's his job to decide what happens to the report once Mueller concludes the investigation. So, but Rod Rosenstein is a really important character in all of this. And he also was the author of the memo that the Trump administration tried to use to justify the firing of Jim Comey. It seems like it seems like 10 years ago. This was in May of 2017. Well, McCabe claims that Rod Rosenstein was serious about invoking the 25th Amendment and wearing a wire to tape Donald Trump talking about possible, co- you know, co- um, obstruction of justice and things. And this was do- going on around the time when Jim Comey was fired. It was a very chaotic time. Now, we kind of heard about this already. The New York Times reported this about Rod Rosenstein and the 25th Amendment suggestion, which is basically the removal of a president if they are uh, unable to perform their duty. It was put in place after John F. Kennedy was assassinated and a majority of the cabinet members have to vote along with the vice president to, to remove a president if they're deemed unable to perform their duties, whether it's physically incapacitated, mentally, whatever. So um, it was reported by the New York Times back in September what, that Rod Rosenstein made these comments about contemplating invoking the 25th Amendment. And Rod Rosenstein never came out and denied he said that. What he did was he said it was in, in jest. He wasn't serious. Same thing about wearing a wire. It was like, oh, we were joking, you know, Andy McCabe and I were like, what do you, Andy, you want me to wear a wire? What do you want here? Now, remember, this is in the context of the Jim Comey firing and all of that chaos back then. So he played it off like it was a joke. Andy McCabe on 60 Minutes was like, it wasn't a joke. He was serious. 
There was nothing joking or sarcastic about it at the time. He even claims that Rod Rosenstein said, listen, I can wear a wire. When I go to the White House, I don't get searched. They'd never know I had a recording device on me. That's, I mean, that's Andy McCabe's version of events. You know, Rosenstein's going to have to come out maybe and, you know, deny this again more forcefully, but that's pretty serious. I mean, you know, you don't really hear that every day. The other part um, was about the opening of the counterintelligence investigation. Now, that's what led to the special counsel, but it was Andy McCabe who was watching a lot of these alarming events taking place who said, I have a feeling if something happens to me, I get fired or whatever. We need to have a record of the fact that the FBI and the intelligence community was concerned enough that we needed to investigate some of these things. And we would would have been derelict in our duty if we didn't. And he cited examples of Trump's comments about, you know, the whole um, witch hunt thing and how there were... Oh, well, he cited a couple things, actually. He also cited the example of of Trump trying to pressure Jim Comey to lay off of the Michael Flynn situation. Michael Flynn, by the way, has pleaded guilty to lying to investigators over his relationship with Russians. Um, He he used the example of, of Trump trying to pressure Rod Rosenstein when he wrote the memo about why he fired Comey, you know, why they were firing Comey to include the Russia stuff in there. And Rod Rosenstein did not feel comfortable doing that. Remember, Trump was obsessed with this. I'm not under investigation directly. I'm not. I want that in the memo. No. But then it didn't matter because two two days later, he went on NBC with Lester Holt and said, yeah, the Russia thing was on his mind about Comey. And it was a witch hunt and all this. So Trump, he, he always telegraphs what he's talking about. Same thing with the national emergency. He said, I didn't need to do this. I just wanted to speed it up. Well, that's the exact opposite of what an emergency is. If it's a damn emergency, then you got to go now. You know, when you have an emergency, you go to the emergency room. You don't say, well, I think I'll wait for a couple of weeks and then I'll do it. Then it's not an emergency. Anyway, Trump always telegraphs what he really thinks. Um, so he lists, so Andy McCain listed a couple of things that were very alarming to him. He gave another example. And this that stood out to me. I was like, whoa. Uh, there was a, 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 a meeting, a briefing with the FBI, and they said that Trump was going off on all these different tangents about God knows what. Not surprising, right? He does this all the time. And one of the tangents he went off on was about how North Korea, the intelligence briefings told him that North Korea had was developing a missile that could hit the U.S. And he was like, I don't believe it. I don't believe this. And and they were like, yeah, but the intelligence community, you know, the professionals who study this stuff, they're like, they are in the process. They might even have one now. And he said, I don't believe it. I believe Putin. Because he claims that Vladimir Putin told him that the North Koreans do not have this capability. What? So McCabe is claiming that Trump said that he doesn't believe his intelligence community. He believes Vladimir Putin. What? I mean, jaw-dropping moment, if that's true. I mean, I I don't, I mean, I have no reason not to believe it's not true. But, so, the 60 Minutes interview was pretty fascinating. Um, 
when Trump obviously has been freaking out about about it. He's out there tweeting away and going on and on about what a witch hunt and there's collusion and you know Fox News um, Fox News personalities calling this treasonous and that this this is proof that there was a coup. The deep state wanted to overthrow the president. That is a bunch of bullshit. That's not true. None of these things are a coup. They are well within the structure of our government if they're to, to follow certain guidelines if there's a problem. It was well within the FBI's authority to open up a counterintelligence investigation based on what they saw. And we see the fruits so far of Mueller's investigation, how many indictments, how many convictions people are going to jail. The, we see what happens with the Russians, with Roger Stone and WikiLeaks and the hacking. I mean, come on. Could you imagine if this was Hillary Clinton? Just substitute anything with Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. Republicans would be screaming from the freaking Capitol Rotunda about impeachment. So um, this Mueller investigation, hopefully it wraps up soon and hopefully we get to see the report. This Andy McCabe thing kind of backs up a lot of reporting that we've heard in the past with anonymous sources. This puts things in context. But there, it, this is not a witch hunt. This is not a coup. This is not treason, at least not on our, not on this end. I can't say for some other folks, but not this part of it. Well, um, with that, I think we're going to move on and talk about uh, Jussie Smollett and this crazy potential hate crime hoax story going on. And now, you know, I feel bad because I, I'm a fan. He's a talented guy, but obviously there's something going on here. And, um, I want to bring in my, my friend John Murray to, to talk a little bit more about that. Well, I'm happy to welcome back to the show uh, a, a good friend of mine, and I, I consider him a friend of the show, TV journalist and pop culture expert John Murray. He was on uh, a couple weeks ago to talk about surviving R. Kelly, and with this explosion of this Jesse Smollett story and questioning whether it actually happened, was it a hoax, was it not, I couldn't think of a better person to have on. So, John, welcome back, my dear. Uh, listen, it's a good time to be here with you, Tara. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, talk to me. What the hell is going on with this Jesse Smollett story? For those who don't know, he plays Jamal Lyon on the hit series Empire. I'm a huge fan, love the show, love his character. I am just, I don't know what to think about what's happening. Listen, if, if we were on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire right now, the million dollar question would be, what the hell is going on with Jesse Smollett? <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only None one. None of us know really what's going on. And here's the thing. So um, I know Jesse not well. Uh, I met him um, at the premiere of Empire. I was with another Hollywood actor. Uh, the publicist, Anna Fusan, for the project, went over to introduce me to him. And he was like, I know who you are. You don't want to be talking slick on TV. You real witty, but I like you. <laughs> and we, it, it, you know, ended up developing a rapport um, and then I was on a syndicated radio show, um, uh, maybe about a year and some change later. And um, I was dealing with the whole Oscar winner Monique Blackball thing. Right. And her talking about how the role of Cookie on Empire was supposed to be hers and all this stuff. Is that and true, the by the way? Of, is that true? Um, that's, we'll have to do a whole other okay. show about that. <laughs> it, 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 
We'll be going deep in the woods if we get Yeah, into that's right. That's true. Let's, let's stick to just let's stick to Jamal Lyon. <laughs> absolutely. Because the Monique thing will become an anthology. Right. Um a, a best of series. But no, um the cast of Empire really liked the way I handled the discussion on the radio show. And so at that point Jesse extended himself to me and we exchanged information. Um and you know, we we've never broken bread. You know, we run into each other in some industry circles. He's always been very nice. You know, I knew he came from a family of activists, and he was an activist before he was a household name because of Empire. Uh, a very well-respected guy and one who, because of, uh, you know, him probably playing one of the most high-profile uh, gay characters on primetime TV, he really had begun to be elevated and run in some very high-brow circles. And so... Um, doesn't he come know, from an entertainment? Doesn't he come from an entertainment family also? Like, wasn't his yes, sister in Eve's Bayou yes, years ago? Yeah, yeah. Listen, there was even a sitcom. Um, I, the name escapes me right now. I've been saying it all day, and I can't remember it now. But literally, almost the entire Dagon's family was on this one sitcom. It was short-lived and didn't have a lot of success. But yeah, so he was a child star. Right. Who, at one point, because he wasn't getting a lot of work as an actor, even worked as a PR professional. Oh, that's interesting. So he under- yes, that's something that most people have not dialogued about. But yes, Jesse worked as a publicist for a period of time as well. So here's the thing. Why would someone who is on a hit primetime drama, who put out an album independently when he wasn't happy with Columbia Records and the way that they were holding his music, telling him it wasn't right. So he put this album out independently. And he has a top 10 recurrent song. Uh, on R&B radio right now, um, and he, you know, gets a level of access, appearances, uh, high A-list invitations that most people in the business don't get. With all of that going on, why would he be in this predicament? None of us really know. But yeah. the reality is that, you know, it is what is happening now. We're all trying to figure it out. And despite the fact that I've told you all these wonderful, great things about him, at least in the court of public opinion, and at least with the new narrative that's being shaped by both Chicago media, national media, and social media, it's not looking very good for Jesse Smollett right now. Yeah, I he mean, stands by his story, Tara. He, he I know, that he had no involvement in any of this because that is what people are accusing him of now. Um, you know, and you want to bring everybody up to speed on the latest developments. Yeah, Right. So what we so as of the recording of this podcast and everyone knows this comes out on Tuesdays and it's once a week. So um, if, you know, things could change. But as of right now, uh, it appears as though there were two Nigerian-American brothers who know Jussie. One was allegedly his personal trainer. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, John. Uh, One was his personal trainer. The other one was an extra or they were both extras on Empire at one point. But they know each other. They were detained after they came back from Nigeria as persons of interest because the Chicago Police Department found holes in Jussie's story from the beginning. And I have to admit that I was one of the people that was quick to believe him. I thought it was horrible. His original story was that he was attacked at two something in the morning uh, by two white guys that had MAGA hats on saying homophobic slurs and put a noose around his neck and poured some kind of chemical substance on him. That's the basic gist of that. So a lot of people, of course, were blaming Trump and this whole 
you know, increase in hate crimes, which is real. Hate crimes are up 17%, according to the FBI. So um, naturally, a lot of people had no reason not to believe Jesse Smollett. He's a big star, talented guy. Why would he make this up? Well, the story started to fall apart pretty quickly because one of the things was he wouldn't give up his cell phone. And he claimed that he was talking to his manager and his manager was like, yeah, I was on the phone when it happened, but then they wouldn't give up their cell phones. So that was something that raised suspicion. And then other start, other and, things started to during the investigation. Go ahead, jump in. Yeah, let's just deal with the cell phone thing uh, alone. Because, you know, I was on one of the cable networks over the weekend. And one of the things that I heard every legal analyst say, which, and it also shares my sentiment. Um, if I was in this predicament, I wouldn't have given up my cell phone either. You don't offer up all your personal information right. to the authorities like that. Now, now, what every legal analyst I saw on television say was, typically in a situation with a client like this, you turn over a spreadsheet that has the official records from the phone company. Right. But apparently what Jesse turned over was a PDF file of the official um, uh, phone records, and a lot of it was redacted, which made it illegible. Uh, and they couldn't really see what was what, and it didn't allow the police to do their job in the best way possible. And you would think that if you were, a, you know, a true victim and you wanted to get to the bottom of it, that you would be as cooperative as possible with as much information as possible for the investigators to get to the bottom of it, not make their lives more difficult. And I agree with you with the cell phone thing, because, you know, these guys, they who knows what's on your cell phone? You know what I mean? You don't want to necessarily give up custody of your cell phone. There's also a lot of leaks. You can't trust everybody all, you know, all the time. But particularly with the Chicago PD, right. they have a very contentious relationship with the African-American sure, community. absolutely. And, and if there are leaks and you got photos up there, you Yeah, know, you don't know what gets out there. Yeah, yeah. Personal videos. Right. And, and, and everything else. Right. The last thing you want is to wake up into a TMZ alert and here's your naked body right. laying in naked as it pleases right. all over the TMZ <laughs> website because of the police decided to leak your photos right well at this point that might have been not as bad as what he's facing now but but i hear you you know and and i and i understand that but there's also other ways like you just said where you can provide that information without handing your cell phone over and not knowing who's looking at what and when um but that was another aspect of this that kind of raised suspicion like well why are you being difficult here um so then we find out about these brothers and then i guess they started talking and they revealed that uh, Jesse allegedly paid them $3,500 to carry out this attack, and they even practiced it beforehand. That's being reported now by CBS News in Chicago. So, you know, the, the, there's evidence that, that they found at the at the brother's house with red hats and receipts and, you know, things from a hardware store. So it's not looking good for Jesse. And I not just... Not looking good at all. I, I, you know, you where, where does he... like two... Yeah, these are two things that I said uh, 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 on cable news on the weekend, and I stand by them. One, the first point is, one of the things that I always found uh, not, not troubling, but questionable in this dynamic is that uh, the cast of Empire, the circle of celebrities, Fox, everybody, didn't come together and pool their resources and offer a reward. Mm. Typically, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a high-profile situation like this where – Facts are hard to come by, uh, and, you know, you've got to dig deep to try to get information. If you offer a substantial reward, people will turn on each other. They'll call up and tell you everything you need to know to help you get answers in this situation. The other thing is I really think at this point, because here's the thing, because I like Jesse, because I respect him, because I think he's a nice guy, and 
it's, it's such an odd thing to say. I'm wishing for the best and hoping that his account of the attack on him is true. I mean, who wishes for someone to actually have really right. been attacked? But, but, but the alternative is even worse. If you weren't attacked and you made it up. So I tell us to say that he might need to take a polygraph test or something that just helps reestablish his version of things in the court of public opinion. Because I promise as, as the days move forward, as the police leaks continue to surface in the media, um, it, I'm going to quote you. It don't look good for you, Jesse. Yeah. And the other side of that is what happens because, you know, there are people who have gone to jail. They've been prosecuted for making false reports, especially when it when it's a waste of police resources and and something as high profile as this. I mean, you know, people I'm sure were hopping to it like that's a crime. You know, it's a crime Listen, if it was and I'm, done. And I'm not a lawyer, but I'll play one on this podcast. Right, I'm not either. I happen, but, yeah. to, know, <laughs> I happen <laughs> to know that this particular incident is a what they call a class four felony. That's right. So it's like it's higher than a misdemeanor and that if convicted of this, uh, he could face up to one to three years in prison. I saw Dan Abrams on Good Morning America. I think he has a great legal mind. I love and Dan one of Abrams. The things that Dan, he, isn't he exceptional? He one really is. One of the things is. that he said was that because of this becoming an international story, they're going to throw the book at him to have to make an example of it. Right. And remember, this is, this is Chicago, so this is where Jesse Jackson Jr. with the prison. This is where Rob Bogoyevich with the prison. They don't have to follow up throwing high-profile people in prison in Chicago. No, no, they, no, they don't. And um, do you think this, is the, this could be career-ending for him? I do. I believe yeah. that if, if the accusations against him and the narrative that this story is not true turns out to be true, I think his days as a Hollywood star are over. I mean, at best, the only thing that could probably come of his career is that in 2020, 2020, he would be uh, making an appearance on the new season of Celebrity Big Brother. But beyond that, <laughs> um, I do believe John. that Empire would have to kill him off the show. Um, I, I don't think radio would play his music. I think Jesse Smollett's life and career as we know it would be over. He'd have to return to civilian life and probably would be working a regular job. Oh, man. I, I just, you know, it, it's it's a very sad story if that's the way that it goes. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, just the facts that are coming out just don't look um, in his favor. They just don't. Um, but it's just a sad state of affairs because people get so intoxicated by celebrity that the lengths that sometimes they'll go to to stay relevant can be their downfall. And I don't know if that's what happened here. Like you said, we don't know what the, what, what, what motivated him to do this. Was there any, did you hear about anything concerning his character on, on empire possibly being written yeah, off and he was trying to get attention? Like I heard some whispers yeah. of that. Yeah, there were, there were these reports that came out that his character was going to be written off of Empire, that there was this huge season finale funeral scene, and that, um, you know, in the scene, uh, you know, he was leaving the show. But Fox and the studio and everybody has come out and definitively declared that that not only is not true, but he is a principal part of the show. Which Apparently, is true. He, um, he, his involvement in the Pepsi endorsement uh, with the show in itself all of that was going to, you know, offer him a concrete job there. Right. And here's the thing. I mean, if we could just offer the listeners here just some advice. Um, let's say the worst case scenario is true and that this may have been some form of hoax, of a hoax, 
for heightened visibility, celebrity attention. You know, maybe he was striving to become the black gay Colin Kaepernick. Mm. Uh, 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 you know, social media and the the desires and the allure of celebrity can cause people to make really poor decisions. Yes, they you know, can. Folks like you and I have done the hard work. We've not gotten in this business and done the work that we've done to be celebrities. We've done it because, one, we were passionate about the careers that we were in. We wanted respectability. And we understood that being the tortoise and not the hare worked for us. Sure. And so yep. when we look at somebody like our, our friend and colleague April Ryan, who was a hardworking woman who was under the radar for almost 50 years of her life. And it took uh, a nut ending up in the White House and <laughs> the minions that worked on his press corps attacking her to all of a sudden put a spotlight on her. And now she's a political rock star, not by choice, but because the work in itself right. gave her the platform. Sure. And she's a great example of somebody, if you just stay the course and do the work and do it with integrity, your gift can make room for you and you don't have to create a hoax or a stunt to get you in that place. Well, amen to that. And shout out to April Ryan, who was a guest here on Honestly Speaking two weeks ago. Um, and we had a great conversation. And um, I, I encourage people to follow April and, and her great work. So kudos to April. I, I That's a good example. Um, yeah, I just have we heard anything from any of the Empire cast? Because I know so many people did jump to his defense, and then it's been radio silence since all this other stuff came out. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, initially a lot of those uh, cast members put out statements. There have been no updated statements or comments from anybody. Uh, the one thing we do know is one of the co-executive producers of the show, a gentleman whose name escapes me right now, he did put out a brand new statement over the weekend say he continues to stand by Justy and he believes Justy. And so apparently there's still some collegiality and some support there with his colleagues on Empire. And I think as the days and weeks to come, I think by the time this podcast is all the way live on Tuesday, there'll be even some more new developments. Um, you know, this story is like an episode of Empire. It some really is. Maybe even more interesting than Empire because the twists and turns and tangles are better than any primetime soap opera I've seen in a long time. That's for sure. And as a fan of the show, that's one of the first things I thought as I saw this starting to turn. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is like a real episode of Empire. What is happening? Well, you're a fan of the show because you're a private karaoke rock star. Oh, gosh. And so you watch that show and you see yourself in the artist. On Empire. Am I telling too much? Am oh, I talking too much? Oh, my goodness. So, what, what, so for those who don't know, uh, John was at our annual Christmas party this year, and we are fans of karaoke in our house. And so we have a karaoke machine, and we were participating. And I like to sing Bon Jovi and things like that. And so John was, was a witness to one of our karaoke nights at a Christmas party. So Mariah just, Carey no. ain't got nothing on you. <laughs> That's all I, I got to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. I wish. Who I idolize, by the way. I love me some Mariah. But um, before I let you go, I we were having an interesting conversation about the way that the media covered this. And I thought that you had an interesting perspective because, you know, there was a lot of rush to judgment. Me, like I said, me included, I take responsibility for that. Um, but I'm not a media reporter. You know, I'm a commentator, so it's my job to have opinions on things. And I stand corrected when I'm wrong. But I've noticed, and so have you, that there's been some kind of um, interesting ways that people are explaining how the media covered this. Because there was certainly a point yeah. of view. What do you think about that? Absolutely. 
here's the thing. Initially, what happened in this dynamic was uh, a, a high-profile celebrity who was on a hit show, who was a respectable, likable, uh, honorable guy, had to go file a police report about a hate crime. And I think, you know, his original account of what transpired is what people reported. I mean, it was basically just the basic facts of what, uh, you know, of what was being accused here. Um, uh, his, the industry, the community, the folks that he had touched, both personally and those who were just fans of his art, they responded with love and support as you would to anybody who was the victim of a hate crime or a civil rights violation and, 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 and the things that he said happened to him. Right. Um, you know, as, as, as the days progressed, uh, and and people began chipping away at the story, particularly, uh, you know, if the 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 narrative of this story not being true uh, is actually true, then the Chicago local Chicago uh, media, which was taking a very objective role in reporting this on television, but were allowing their reporters to take an aggressively critical role uh, against Jesse and the story on their. Uh, personal Twitter um, pages, um, they are the ones who really began chipping away at this and and, and getting insight from the Chicago uh, Police Department that really began to turn the tide and question the validity, validity of some of the things that were being alleged here. And so when I hear uh, someone like uh, CNN's Brian Steltler uh, say, oh, well, it was a bunch of celebrity uh, media and social media people who set the tone on this and they rushed to judgment and, and declaring that this was a real crime. People only reported on what was being filed in a police report as you would in any situation like this. Mm-hmm. And people responded with love and support, even the company that employed Brian. Right. So, yeah, you know, we did. I, CNN I was, yeah. Yeah. I don't think anybody can point any fingers here. I don't think anybody needs to be uh, playing the blame game, you know, just like with uh, James Fry, um, the author, what was the book, A Million Little Things, whatever the book was called, that he wrote that best-selling book and he went on Oprah's book club. And then after, uh, you know, he sold millions of copies of his book, it, it was disclosed that he had uh, made up a lot of the things that he said happened to him in the book. And then Oprah brought him back on the show and took him to task for being a liar. Mm. Just like with uh, the iconic story of the woman, Tawana Brawley, who said she right. was attacked by some white people and it all like when uh, you see Reverend Al came out you see Reverend Al came out and made a comment speaking of Tawana Brawley that's what propelled Al Sharpton into infamy um he came out and said Jesse Smollett should be held accountable to the full extent of the law for it he was pretty tough on it so we're not none of us are uh, uh, should be shocked by the idea that people have made up horrendous stories like this before. If this turns out to be true with Jesse, um, I just think moving forward, we, we need to make sure that um, I don't know that anything that anybody did could be done differently. Yeah. Folks, just tell the truth and don't right. file false police reports, and we won't have to worry about uh, your integrity in a dynamic like this. There's enough shitty stuff going on in the world. We don't need to make it up at this point. I mean, true, come on, Jesse. True words have never been spoken. Is this the end of Empire, <laughs> though? I mean, is this the last season? If this, uh, is, no, if this turns out... Because you think the Empire can go on without Jamal Lyon? I don't know. Oh, oh absolutely. First of all, it, there's only one star of that show. 
Oh, it's Taraji. That would cause that show to go away, and that's Cookie. Now, the moment Cookie says farewell to the Empire Records, yeah. then that's when the show will go away. With those sons, their wives, their girlfriends, and any of those artists signed to Lions Records, uh, they're all disposable. All Even right. All right. You will. I'm going to hold you to that because, like I said, my mom. My mom got me into watching Empire, by the way, because <laughs> you. Of course, she did, right? You know what? Because your mama might actually be the real Cookie Lion. <laughs> my mom is pretty cool. She is fierce. She doesn't dress as well as Cookie, though. But my mom is fierce. <laughs> John Murray, thank you, my darling. Tell tell my listeners how they can find you again, please. Listen, you can find me on uh, most social media platforms with my full name, J-A-W-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y, and on Facebook at John Murray World, J-A-W-N-M-U-R-R-A-Y World. And then also check out my lifestyle site, alwaysaimless.com. It houses all my TV clips. Uh, you can find my various travel jaunts and all the different things I have going on in the world. And follow John because he's always in the know. This, this is my my pop culture expert right here. So that's why I like to bring him on the show. Not only is he a personal friend, but he's a friend of the show too. John Murray, thank you, my dear. Anytime, anytime. Thanks again to John Murray. Uh, he's always a, always a blast when I have John on. He's, he's, uh, he's so much fun. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. They're all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. You heard right, Mennonites. 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Wednesdays, 10, 9 central on WGN America. The new TV series Pure is based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head and the good pastor along with his wife will do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. Think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. So get hooked on Pure, Wednesdays at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on DirecTV, channel 307, or the Dish Channel, 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. So now I'm going to transition a little bit over to some politics and bring in my friend Michael Steele who, like I said before, he was the first um, African-American Republican National Committee chairman, and that was quite the battle for him. I don't think the party was ready for him. We're going to talk about that. But Michael um, is also an MSNBC contributor, and uh, he has his own podcast. It's called the Michael Steele Podcast. It used to be called the Man of Steel, but now it's called the Michael Steele Podcast. So be sure to check that out. And without further ado, Michael Steele. Well, uh, it's always a pleasure when I have friends on with me for Honestly Speaking, but it's always particularly great when I have someone as awesome and down to earth as my good friend, Michael Steele, former RNC chair, former lieutenant governor of Maryland, and just an all around great guy. And I'm so thankful for the fact that he did not sell out and <laughs> go the, go the cra- <laughs> jump on the crazy train of the Trump people so we can still be friends. <laughs> Michael Steele, welcome to Honestly Speaking with Tara. 
I hate Tara. Absolutely. No, no, I stopped taking crazy pills a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Probably when you were no longer RNC chair. Okay. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Michael, I, you know, you and I have been friends for a long time. And yeah. um, it, it's, uh, it's just shocking to me to see kind of where we are as a party. Um, where we are as a country, it's so incredibly different from back in the good old days when we were just fighting over George Bush's legitimacy as president after the election in 2000. <laughs> I mean, that well, looks yeah. like small it, potatoes. Yeah, it's, you know, you, you put your finger on on really sort of how the last, wow, 10, 15 years has kind of taken shape and, and, and unfolded. You know, you go back and, you know, a lot of people miss, miss the, the warning signs that, that sort of emanated uh, really going back to the 2000 campaign. And if you want to get particular, going back uh, to the 1990s um, and, and how the, con- the Congress itself had begun to change. You had Newt Gingrich and, and sort of the sort of radical in your face kind of politics, which really upset the the good old boy network inside the House, for example, where, you know, Newt would go after the opposition leadership, you know, taking down uh, leader right and, and so forth. Um, and all of these little seeds were planted. And mm-hmm. people, the funny thing about seeds is they germinate. <laughs> right. They don't. You if know, they're watered. The Bible pa- Right. The Bible passage makes it very clear. You know, the you had the sower out there, he's sowing seeds, and some fell on good soil, some fell on, fell on bad soil, some fell on rocks. But in each of those instances, regardless of where they fell, they grew something. That's, that, you know? that's right. That's right. And and, 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 and what that something that. is, yeah, what that something has become is is fairly alarming to me and I know it is for you too because you you know you're you're a little older than I am but just a, you, bit. Just a little but, but um, good. yes you but do cuz you know black but don't I crack stuff. my friend that's right um you know I was I was in DC in the 90s I was in college at the time so I saw that was really like my first introduction into full blown politics that's why I came to GW right. That's, you know, I was here at the beginning of the Republican Revolution when Gingrich and that that crew took over Congress after 40 years. And they were like, we've been in the wilderness for 40 years and we're going to turn this around and shake things up in ways, like you said, that this town had not seen before. And they were relatively successful legislatively. They were able to pull Bill Clinton into the center and get some policy initiatives passed through. Um, but there was something, you know, there was an, an, an undercurrent there that maybe I was naive to uh, in the beginning because I, I, I think to my I look back at that and I go, was the Republican Party always like this? And I just missed <laughs> no. it. You know, <laughs> no. help no, me the, out. The party was the party was in large measure, uh, sort of a, uh, a had a, a sort of a New England kind of um, uh, air about it. You know, it was it was um, you know talk about the Northeast Republicans. That was really the definition of the Republican Party, sort of a a center right sort of uh, environment where they were more centrist on on issues that they really didn't 
care about. And I don't say care in a, in a negative way, but it wasn't it wasn't something like you know a lot of the social issues that we now fight over and in many cases harangue about weren't dominant. They weren't preeminent issues that right. the party would, would they had more of a libertarian attitude. So it was sort of a central centrist kind of view, and they were conservative on fiscal and international affairs, and and that. That was kind of uh, the way it worked. What happened was the 1980 campaign of Ronald Reagan flipped the script because Reagan cut the bargain uh, in order to get the votes he needed um, with the emerging uh, force called the Moral Majority, Mm -hmm. brought them into the party, inserted a plank in the platform. I mean, the parallels between Reagan and and Trump in one sense are, are rather stark. Reagan sort of made this uh, Faustian bargain in which he recognized the political capital that could be gained from this new emerging political force, the more majority, put a plank in the platform of the party, a pro-life plank, uh, first time ever. The party never had a pro-life plank or any plank regarding um, this type of a social issue in it. Trump does the same thing on on stuff that were related to Russia and a few other things. Um, that pushed the party in a different direction that gave um, sort of firepower uh, to this emerging political force, the Trumpian type uh, forces that are out there. So you, you see these changes that sort of buffet the parties, uh, the party in a way that uh, redirects its course. And, and we saw that. Uh, and 35, 40 years from that um, decision by Reagan, We've seen the consequences play itself out, just as we're seeing real time the consequences played out from, you know, adapting a lot of the positions of this administration that are antithetical to where the Republican Party has been for 60 years. Right. Uh, That's right. And and so it creates confusion. It it certainly creates division. Uh, And the, the test for the party is, and I know this firsthand because a lot of it. I had to deal with as national chairman is how do you rebuild after a devastating hit? And we mm-hmm. saw that in, in 20, in 2006 and 2008, where we got our clocks clean. By the time we got to those congressional elections in 2010, I'm sitting there looking at the world going, well, I've got a lot of ashes around me and I don't see a Phoenix in sight. So, <laughs> we, you know, yeah. I got I to figure out what to do here. And that's where the party finds itself now. But, you know, I think the difference from 2010 to now is that the party wasn't necessarily in moral and principle shambles. Like it it was policy, you know, it was, well, we haven't done a good job of selling our policies and we didn't have great, uh, you know, we didn't have a great uh, presidential candidate. I mean, you know, rest in peace, John McCain, but he was not a great candidate to go up against Barack Obama. There, that just was a, a, you know, bad timing for him. And so it was more of a political shift. Okay. What do we do to, to do better as opposed to what's happening now, which is a, just a fundamental um, redefinition of what the Republican Party stands for, what it means to be a conservative. I mean, these things are at, at issue now, which I don't think we'd ever seen that before since maybe when the Whigs were, you know, back back in the 1800s, yeah. you know, when the Whigs had to split off and became the Republican Party. I mean, I, I just don't. Can you remember a time where there was such an existential threat to the party itself? 
Well, it, it, not not really. And and if you go back and you look at the Whig Party back in the day, which did not want at the at you know before the founding of the Republicans in 1856, you you had this um, this idea of you know our, our sort of our own form of isolationism uh, or on the matter of slavery and right. race and the Whigs the Whigs did not like the infiltration of of the abolitionists who right. were more and more emerging inside the the Whig party and those abolitionists broke off and sort of formed what we now know as the Republican party so you haven't had that kind of uh, wholesale disruption there is talk that you know what we see coming out of the era of Trump is something very similar not around uh, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, um, something as profound and deep as abolitionism and, and sort of, you know, a fight against slavery, but also a 180 degree turn where it's isolationism, it's, you know, it's sort of this nationalist view of things and whether or not what what comes out of this is something that breaks off from the Republican Party um, and starts its own thing, or or the remnants of today's Republican Party sort of breaks off from this Trumpian thing mm-hmm. and goes off and starts its uh, its own uh, new direction. That narrative is going to play itself out. The one thing I will say that what what I realized was um, we were in this space without knowing we were in this space for some time. There before Trump showed up. There was always there had been roiling since the days Reagan left the the, the political stage, mm-hmm. uh, a fight over who we are, what do we believe. You saw the emergence of very of various forces inside the party um, that wanted to reclaim the Reagan uh, tradition or legacy for its own, and and sort of rebranded in it in its image as opposed to being branded in Reagan's image. And so you had this this internal fight um, manifest itself um, after the 2006 election um, of, of um, uh, the the president that. Um, gave... Well, that's when we lost the we lost the in the midterms we lost control of the house in 2006, right? Right, exactly. So in that election, in that election after the reelection of of Bush in 2004. We saw it come home to roost, where a significant portion of the Republican base, I know this well because I was on the ballot in 2006 for the U.S. Senate, right. stayed home and rejected rejected the old Reagan Republicanism uh, and stayed out of the fight and sat on the sidelines for quite some time until um, Tea Party, uh, right? Sort of finding voice around Tea Party, yep. correct? And so this, you see this trajectory, and and Trump disrupts that that internal fight. Um, because it didn't resolve itself. It never resolved itself. Trump steps in, and all of a sudden now, they have something to latch on to. They have yeah. something with, with a bigger bullhorn and a bigger stick uh, to use against the established Republicans, um, and, and here we are. You know, I'm glad that you uh, brought that up because I often wonder, like I said earlier in the conversation, you know, like, what what did I miss all these years being so actively involved in the conservative movement and the Republican Party? You know, for me, it was always ideological. It was always the principles behind um, being a conservative and, and fighting for those 
those uh, changes in legislation and just public policy implementation coming, you know, I come out of the Jack Kemp kind of Reagan, right. Bill Buckley hybrid, you know? Uh, and so watching what's happening now, I'm going, what did I miss? Like when you were RNC chair, it was uh, historic. You were the first black man ever, black person ever to be nominated right. and win the RNC chairmanship. And those of us who had watched the, the kind of the shifts in those things and been frustrated over the years with the Republican Party's failure in the outreach to, to the black community in particular, that was a great victory. I was so happy when you won that chairmanship. I'm like, yes, finally the party gets it. You know, we're think some things are going to change around here. And then... There was now you had a lot of legislative victories, but you also had a significant amount of pushback. Talk a little bit about what it was like for you in that capacity, because well, it was more than just being, you know, I'm RNC chair. Let's go win some elections. There was, you know, you had to deal with some stuff. No, I have absolutely had to deal with some stuff. And I, the way I summed up my two years as chairman is uh, they liked the idea of Michael Steele, a black man as chairman. They just couldn't deal with the truth of it, the reality mm -hmm. of it, because the expectation is, um, and we've seen this, and you you know probably firsthand time and time again, that um, they love you coming into the space as a minority, but they want you to come in in a white way. Yes, indeed. You can't be ethnic. Right. You, you know, you, you can't. You know, you stop being a black man when you put you put the Republican label on. And I remember telling a few members that, uh, dude, when I look in the mirror, I don't see anything but a black man. I'm not going to leave that behind. I can't. Right. And so, you you know, when I one of my first official acts, literally the week after I got elected, was to go to New York and host a town hall in, in Harlem. I remember and that. You would have thought you would have thought I was saying, let's go to the moon. <laughs> you know, people are like, well, why are you going to Harlem? I'm like, well, that's where the votes are. What do you, why else right. would not go to Harlem? Well, and obviously you know, they and, didn't realize that that's also where a lot of white folks are now because <laughs> Harlem well, is like, well, <laughs> they, yeah, you should have told them that. that. Yeah, but back, yeah, back then, <laughs> you know, you know, in, 10 years ago, it was, it was, it was transitioning. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so there was, there was still a very significant, as there are, is now, black I know, I'm just Hispanic vote. And, and, oh, yeah, well, you know, white folks showed up. That's cool. Um, but the fact is, um, when you when you try to when you try to change the system to meet the rhetoric, that's when the pushback comes. Mm. I love talking. That's why I banned the word outreach in during my term. Yep. Because I realized it was it was a canard. It was it was it was a lie. There wasn't real outreach. I mean, they would they would, for example, they would put in the political budget um, before I came out, you know, X amounts of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do, quote, outreach. This is how we're going to go into the black and Hispanic community and we're going to get these folks, right? Yeah. But the minute they run up against um, the process, start the process, they would shift those dollars <laughs> away from that, quote, outreach into other things. I come in, I actually create a department, give it a million dollar budget, put a director and staff yes, you did. in charge of that budget yep. and, and say, okay, now let's go do coalition work. And they didn't want to fund it. They yeah. tried repeatedly to cut the budget for it. So there's, I, you know, the, the party's gotten itself caught in this vortex where 
it's rea- it's rhetoric is one thing. It's reality is something else. And you don't have to believe what I just said. I give you I give you a more recent example. Remember that little thing called the autopsy, autopsy report I that Vice Priebus did after they got we got our if I can say the word oh yeah asses this is the, in, in, yes <laughs> okay got our asses kicked in in 2012 and they come out with this huge mea culpa oh my god I can't believe this is happening we're losing Hispanic votes what did they say in that autopsy we as a party have to go out and do everything we can to get the the minority vote Hispanic vote black vote we're going to be committed we're going to do right. this. What happened? What happened four years later? I mean, Donald it Trump right? comes down an escalator and says, "All Hispanics are murderers, rapists, criminals." And basically, <laughs> he might as well have said Mexicans, yeah, ba- but he might basically, as well, right? yeah, that's right, that's right. And what did the party do? They elected him president of the damn United States. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so, I know. So don't, so don't have to believe me. The evidence is there. So the idea is, we like to put it on paper. Tara, we like to write about it. Mm-hmm. We even like to talk about it. Just God, don't ask us to do it. Which because is, that's uh, where the problem comes in. Yep. It, which is just so frustrating because it's uh, we had such an opportunity with the some of the newcomers in the party, you know, even with Paul Ryan and and others that uh, that that got it, you know, and it was like, how did you guys lose your way so badly? Is it just that you're cowards or that you'd never believed it in the first place? I mean, that the racial ugliness that we see now in the country coming from uh, I mean, there's always been obviously that, you know, a certain racial underbelly that's that's plagued this country. But what we're seeing now and enabled by the Republican Party because Donald Trump is is uh, is never held accountable really for the, the horrible things that he says and does and and the, just the racial animosity he foments. Like, did you see that kind of racial ugliness when you were RNC chair, or was it was it there and just more hidden, or what? Oh yeah, it was much more hidden. I mean, to, today what Donald Trump has done is he's you know he's he's like the guy who um, you know. Uh, opens up, opens up the, uh, the 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 porno shop, so you no longer have to you know go online. You can actually now go down the street. You know right. what I'm saying? It's like right. he put, he brings it out into the open. Yeah. You know, you know all these all these little quaint, quiet communities where people you know sort of you know upper crusted and all all uptight and you know but secretly go online or or you know have packages wrapped in brown pack you know uh brown paper delivered to the house mm-hmm. now they just get out and they go they go into they go into the stores and the shops publicly i mean that's basically right. what he's done he's opened it up yeah, he's emboldened and made them. it right exactly made it more comfortable for people to openly express what they really feel and and a lot of this is you know based on quote their their fear about the browning of america or their their fear about uh, movements like Me Too that are exposing bad behavior of of men in power, for example. Um, that's why you saw it that at one point it, it, at the height of the of the of the Me Too discussion. You know, Donald Trump seemingly taking the side of white men accused of acting badly. You know, just like him, <laughs> just yes. like him. Though I he mean, can't he can't call like them him. out when he's got it. You know, his own problems. Of course. So, so it, the the point is, it was it's it's more hit. It was more hidden. Uh, I would have people say to me, for example, I'll never forget this one woman uh, member, female member. Uh, 
here in, in Prince George's County, in, in my home county, you know, we were doing a meeting uh, down at National Harbor, and, and we're standing there talking, and, you know, me, I'm dressed up, you know, I've got the uniform on, well, not really. <laughs> she looks at me, she goes, she said, you know, she said, you know, I can, because I was in the throes of running for chairman, and it was a mess. I mean, people I didn't want me to run for chairman, and they, you know, tried everything they could to talk about it, and, but then you had people who were called, so-called friends who were giving me analysis of what my problems had been and why I was having so many problems. Mm. And w- one particular piece of analysis was, well, you know, if you just, if you just, you know, wore like a white shirt and <gasps> red or blue tie and a dark suit, you know, you, 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 you fit in more. Oh my God. And that was the whole thing. That was the thing. <sighs> the idea was you didn't fit in as chairman. Well, and, <laughs> and, and, and I don't and think so, it was the suit. <laughs> right. Exactly. But the suit becomes a metaphor for everything yes. else. Yes. And, and you just and you realize that, you know, yeah, we love touting the black Republicans who are serving on the RNC. And these are good men and women. And I appreciate know some of them. Some of them I'm a little bit suspect of. But mm-hmm. OK, that's fine. You know, yeah. uh, but they're good people in, in their own way doing their thing. Right. Um, but they don't necessarily challenge the system. They fit in. Yeah. Uh, and that's what they like. They like the comfort of people fitting in. Um, and and that's. And you know, know what, that's Michael? Just not America. I have no patience for that, which is why I walked away from any kind of uh, black outreach with the RNC or the National Party. Right many many years ago because i saw that and as you know i am a nonconformist if i see something right. that you know i'm not just going to go along to get along and and just fit in a little mold because that's the safe thing to do bullshit if it's not right it's not right if something needs to be changed then we change it you know you do what you got to do to get things done and i was very wide-eyed and bushy-tailed in the 90s and very eager as a young college republican because i saw the potential for the republican message to be really powerful in in communities that needed to hear it because I didn't believe right. in, in, you know, victimization and, and the government can't coming in and that, you know, the, the great society experiment. I saw I was watching what a failure this was and how people had no hope. And I said, no, our Republican principles uh, actually would be much better. Let's empower the individual, you know, like let's get back to the Jack right. kind of stuff. Um, right. And. And when I saw that the Republican Party as a whole was uninterested in doing the work of investing in people and investing in communities to establish those relationships so that we could demonstrate how and why our policies actually work better, they weren't interested in that. They wanted the quick, we were going to put together some kind of lame, very stereotypical uh, radio ad six weeks before an election on a black radio station and think that that's going to move the needle. I was like, are you people serious? I was, I'm done. I was done. I was done. Yeah, that, that was, that's about right. And yeah. it, it is this, the sense that, I mean, look, if, if you are, you know, I call myself a Lincoln Republican because I'm as old school as you can get when it comes to the GOP. Right. And if you, if you have any adherence to those, those underpinnings, those values that define the party for over a hundred years, um, then you have a problem with what's going on right now. One would uh, hope, and, and Michael. Those, one would hope, you know. Well, 
and, and what we've seen is uh, utter capitulation. Um, I, I apparently had the word of the day last week yes. on, uh, on Twitter. Yes, I love it. It's a great word. It was feckless. <laughs> it, 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 feckless in, distri- in describing the Republican leadership when it comes to Donald Trump. And my point was not only were they feckless, they were pathetically feckless yes. in the idea that you you can't even you're not even good at being, you know, <laughs> incompetent in right. your leadership. That's right. <laughs> I was and, like, how, do, how does that work? Right. But, how, they, but they, they, they're so afraid, Tara, of their own shadow. Yeah, the um, cowards. Because they see their they see their shadows in the form of Donald Trump and the base of, what, 30-some percent of, of Republicans who still stand with them. Let me tell you, when this is over, those folks will recede. They will go of course. away. They They'll go not, back under the they're rocks. They're not going to stay. That's correct. They're not going to be mainstream Republicans. That's so right. the question becomes, how do you then rebuild and move the country forward when you have very little credibility with the country as a whole that has uh, because been because of how you've behaved right now that has been my one of my biggest motivating factors for uh, being so outspoken because a lot of people ask me and I'm going to ask you the same thing I, I suspect it's a similar answer but a lot of people ask me why in the hell are you still a Republican? <laughs> yeah, oh, my God. <laughs> I get that. Through every, I can't get to an airport. I right. cannot get to an airport without having asked that question at least three times. Right. I mean, we already yeah. we already had to kind of um, explain ourselves being, you know, minority Republicans because people are like, well, you know, the parties, you're, you know, in a party right. that's against your own interests. So we have to get into the, the principles behind why we're Republicans. Right. But that now it's it's beyond that. It's beyond that at this point. Um, I have my own reasons, and I've explained it before. But I'm going to ask you: Why are you still a Republican, given the, the the assault that's on those underpinnings that that used to define the Republican Party for a hundred years? They are those lines are blurred. What keeps you? So let me give it to you in a way that I think you and your audience can not just visualize but appreciate, because I think this makes sense for me. So, Tara, you invite me. Uh, I come to your home, all right? I, I come to your home, uh, and um, I'm there for dinner. And we're sitting around, and in the, in the course of the meal, I take my plate and I throw it on the floor and I break it. I then get up and I go to your drapes and I pull them down from the wall. I then take out a, a pocket knife and I start cutting up your couch. I go into your kitchen and start pulling food and, and, and stuff out of the cabinets and throwing them all over the place. So at a certain point, do you leave the house or do you kick my ass out? <laughs> yes, I kick your ass out. Thank you. That's, That's why right. I stay. This is my house. That's right. I've been a Republican since 1976. Um, I was Republican before Donald Trump even knew what a Republican was because he didn't care. Donald Trump was a Democrat for the vast majority of his uh, political uh, That's life. right. That's right. Uh, and, and he still is. He's not. I mean, if, if anything, he's more Democrat than he is Republican. I think we will see that play yes. itself out if we, if we have it already. Um, so he, he, he has no tie to this house. He has no interest in this house. He has nothing invested in this house. He has no ownership of this house. 
he's yes, he's the titular head of it. He's been, you know, brought in by some wayward children who look, mom, it's like bringing home a puppy. Oh, look, and now the puppy's <laughs> pissing all over the house, right? Um, yeah. You either potty train that thing or you get rid of it. Right. And so um, at this point, for me, that's the fight. Uh, this is my house. Mm, uh, my I would... house along with many Republicans like yourself yeah. um, and, and others. And I say it's, the, it's worth staying and fighting for it. And, yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to do some repairs when, it's, when I finally get your ass out of here. <laughs> I'm going to have to – yeah, I'm going to buy some new drapes and I'm going to put some new floorboards on. I may have to buy some new china. Yeah, I'm going to have to work to get my house back. Yeah. Um, but it's still my house. Yeah. And, and, and I, I knew because I've heard you give that answer before, but I wanted my audience to hear that because I thought that that was one of the uh, most poignant explanations as to why those of us who are so fed up with what's happening um, and just so alarmed by what's happening with Donald Trump and the Republican Party, that's why we stay. Some others have decided to yeah. take a different route and I don't judge them and for it. Fine. I get it. Yeah, I get. believe me, I've struggled with um, remaining a Republican based off of some of the dis- despicable behavior I I've seen from so many um, but then the other side of it is exactly what you said somebody has somebody sane has to be here to pick up the pieces because we still need to have two functioning uh, political parties right. in this country um, to govern properly um, who uh, who's been your biggest disappointment in the Republican Party because I have a I have a list but I'm curious so when you sit back and you watch this like this whole national emergency thing that's going on now is just another example of where anyone Republicans have calls, lost it virtually anyone who calls himself a Republican senator yeah, um, um, I just I mean, for the for the ones who remain silent, uh, the ones who, as they were leaving, suddenly found voice mm-hmm. and bravado and were looking to push back. I, you need to stay and fight. Right. You know, yeah, you may lose a primary. Yeah, you may lose an election, but stay and fight. If it matters that much, you fight. Right. That's right. That's you what know, I was L- taught. Lindsey Graham. I, I've always admired Lindsey Graham. You know, he clearly now is rudderless without without John McCain. Uh, um, unbelievable. It's just it is such a disappointment. It is such a disappointment. I look at and listen to a uh, video of his of his rhetoric about Trump. Not not 10 years ago, but 10 months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 I compare it to what I'm hearing now. And I just shake my head. I have a lot of shaking my head emojis when it comes Me to too. And Me too. So, it, so that that's the disappointment in many respects uh, is the the leadership that gave up on the party that that let this person come into the house and not just disrupt the family, but to begin to uh, tear up the home. Yes, and 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 and. That's the deconstruction of the administrative state started inside the GOP. It started when the party allowed Donald Trump to have the Russians write our damn platform. Oh, my God. It started when, when, yep. when Donald Trump, um, you know, when the party allowed Donald Trump to um, go after the very constituencies that we know in our core um, are of real value, not to us, just to us as a party, but to the very fabric of this nation, allowing him to refer to um, communities, uh, the origins of communities of colors as shitholes mm-hmm. and calling, uh, calling out Muslims and, and, and then giving, giving license, giving license 
to hatred, uh, when he equalizes that hate with with good people saying, well, they're good people. On, on both, both sides. sides. Yeah. So, yeah. So all of this, all the leadership and, you know, it's leadership either by title or leadership by your willingness to stand up and push back. The fact that in both instances that's been lacking um, from any number of people has just been disappointing. How, do you, where do you where do you think we go from here? I mean, we have a last couple of minutes, and I just want to ask you about that. And sure. then I also want to get your quick reaction to the sixty minutes interview because that is just like uh, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Um, where where do we go from here? How do we get him the hell out of our house? It's the guest well, that will leave. We we got we got to call the neighbors. Because <laughs> 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 clearly. Clearly, the family is kind of kind of dysfunctional right now. Right. You, you know, you've got some who are shell shocked and are hiding in their room. You've got others who <laughs> the hell with this and have left and driven off in their own car. And then you got other you got other family members who are actually helping him tear up the damn floorboard. Right. So so you need to call the neighbors, and that's everyone else in the neighborhood uh, needs to now come in and help this family. Uh, get get this menace uh, under control, and and that's what the ballot box is for. And uh, I think we've already seen a taste of that in the 2018 cycle. Um, you're guaranteed to see an even bigger taste of that in in the 2020 cycle. But here's the rub on this, and I think it's something people need to be very smart about. Um, the leadership that's emerging right now on the on the Democratic side. Um, is eerily reminiscent of what I saw uh, in terms of their rhetoric and the policies they're promoting, what I saw on the right in 2010, in mm. 2009 and 2010. So every time you hear the word progressive substitute Tea Party and you get a sense of where the Democrats are now finding themselves, uh, which is why someone like an Amy Klobuchar stands out a lot more than she ordinarily would because the party is pushing so hard in one direction. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, I think that is a misreading of where the country is. I agree. I think it's a misreading of where the country wants to go. Um, so uh, despite despite the disruption inside the Republican House, um, Donald Trump right now wins reelection. I you can't beat somebody yes. with nobody. That's right. And I keep saying that, you know, I, I've never wanted to root for Democrats before to win anything. But at this point, there's nobody on the Republican side with uh, that could possibly take Trump out in the primary. I don't think realistically. Um, and none of them really have enough balls to challenge him anyway. But on the Democrat side, I strongly believe that Joe Biden with the right vice president could take Trump out. And that's the direction the Democrats need to go in if they if they have any chance of trying to course correct with the country. And then as Republicans, we can, you know, fight a normal political fight with Democrats in power right. and get back on track, you know, get us out of this. Right. I, I think you're right on there. I've been uh, touting Joe Biden for, oh, gosh, about a year now. And, yes. and you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Um, the problem is the Democrats got to get out of their own way. Yep. You know, they use stu stupid, um, you know, litmus tests like ageism. I mean, oh, he's too old. Well, if, if the man is upright, breathing, and actually <laughs> right. has some good ideas that resonate with the American people, go for it. I mean, yes. I remember everyone saying Reagan's too old, and yet America said he's all right for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so – uh, and, and Trump was the same way. Trump was in his, you know, 70s when he got elected, 70, 71 when he mm -hmm. got elected. So, 
Um, you know, let's let's see how that 70 something year old Biden does up against the 30 something and the 40 something year olds that are running now. Right. Uh, my bet is he bests them. My bet Me is too. that, you know, as Bernie as Bernie Sanders showed in the 16 campaign. Yeah. Um, you know, he had the appeal of 18 year olds, which and was fascinating, fascinating to me. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. you know. I, I wouldn't sell guys like Biden short. You're you're not you you should be less concerned about their age unless they're drooling and can't put a coherent sentence together. <laughs> then yeah, maybe you want to rethink that. We already have but that in the White House now. <laughs> Thank you. It's, you <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just nasty. Uh, uh, well, you know, I mean, let's just be let's just call it what it is here. You know, it's, oh it's, my God. so really quick because I know you got to go, but I, sure. I've got to ask you the the sixty minutes interview over the weekend with former um, uh, assistant FBI director or acting FBI director Andy McCabe who was unceremoniously fired for lying about a leak to the press concerning Hillary Clinton by the way it wasn't even Trump related Uh, he was on 60 minutes and made some pretty explosive um, accusations and some interesting stuff about uh, Rod Rosenstein and the 25th Amendment and, and that it was true that they talked about going in with a wire possibly because they were so concerned about Donald Trump and his relationship with the Russians that they opened the counterintelligence investigation. What was your reaction when you were watching that and what alarmed you the wow. most? <laughs> wow. Yeah. All of it. <laughs> yeah. All of it. All of it. It just tells you there has been for a long time very gener- serious concerns about the competency of the man in the Oval Office. Um, it has been rumors and back chatter on the streets around D.C. and in quiet spaces in D.C., um, probably starting six to eight months into this term. But that was just verification uh, on a massive scale of how uh, concerned individuals with authority uh, were about the president of the United States being an agent for a foreign government uh, to the point where they were willing to put on a wire to the point that they were willing to actually consider uh, acting on the to see if the support was there under the 25th amendment among the cabinet members to do something if it was necessary that should tell us a lot about um, the state of things right now in this white house it's extraordinary, and everyone should pay attention. I know that they're going to try. And I mean, Trump is on a, a Twitter tantrum. He's freaking out about this and obviously other things that it struck a nerve. But everyone needs to pay attention. Andy McCabe, yeah. yes, he has you know, a, a credibility issue over you know, leaking an article about Hillary Clinton, but that does not erase his 21 years of experience as a counterintelligence officer with the FBI and everyone else yeah. who are professionals in this area and what they recognize and what they saw and and what he's doing. I mean, people just need to pay attention. That's right. Michael Steele, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Everybody check out Michael Steele's podcast. It's called Man of Steel. And it comes out, when does it come out, Michael? How do people find you? Actually, it comes out once a week, usually like on Mondays or so. And we actually just changed the name to the Michael Steele podcast. Oh, because nice. people were getting confused with Superman. So uh. I don't know why, but anyway. <laughs> so then it's the, so so now it's called the Michael Steele podcast. The Michael Steele. The yeah, eponymous we just, we podcast we, name. We would. Yeah, we wouldn't overthink it. The Michael Steele podcast. Well, good. And and people can find you on Twitter, yes. 
Absolutely. At Michael Steele on Twitter. Absolutely. And that's S-T-E-E-L-E, not to be confused with the other Michael Steele. And they can find you. Right. And they can find you on MSNBC as well. So we have cross cable news channel love here. I may be a CNNer, but I still have love for my brother Michael Steele over there at MSNBC. Michael, thank you so much. Keep up the good work. You got it, Tara. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. The Black History Month theme continues. Um, next week, I'll see who, who the guest is going to be. We have a couple of good ones. We see. We just have to stay tuned, wait and see. But um, thank you again for listening. And follow me on social media at Tara Setmayer on Twitter or at Honestly underscore Tara. Please be sure if to tweet at me and let me know your thoughts about the episode and Anything I missed or things you want me to talk about, potential guests, I'm pretty interactive on social media, so be sure to send me your thoughts. And um, also on Instagram, at Tara Setmayer. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week.